Welcome to the Littler Artificial Intelligence Robotics and Data Podcast. Conversations about employers integrating robotics, AI systems, big data, and analytics into their workplaces in the United States and worldwide. This is Matt Scherer. I am an analytics associate with Littler Mendelssohn. I'm in the robotics automation and artificial intelligence practice group, as well as Littler's data analytics team. I'm here today with Andrew Arruda, the founder of Ross Intelligence. And Andrew, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what Ross Intelligence is and what your role there is? Absolutely. Thanks, Matt. So thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be discussing artificial intelligence in the practice of law. Um, my background is I started my career off as an attorney. I was a technologist as well. I would, ever since I was you know, a kid, I would be working with PCs and try to take them apart and figure out how things work and ended up going to law school. And while at law school, became completely obsessed with the idea that technology would be able to help attorneys scale what they can do. And I think I was in the right place at the right time where about five years ago, I ended up meeting the co-founder of my company, Jimo Viagle, who was studying artificial intelligence at the University of Toronto. And what we did and what kind of the overall goal of our company is, is to streamline the workflows that attorneys have with legal research using artificial intelligence. And I know we're going to get into a really good discussion today, Matt, about what that exactly means. So I don't want to kind of put the uh, cart before the horse there, but we've been able to tap into things such as natural language processing and machine learning to really cut down both the time you need on certain tasks, as well as improve the accuracy that attorneys can have when performing legal research tasks. Great. And yes, we're going to focus today on the implications of the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the practice of law. So let's start kind of big picture. What is artificial intelligence good at and what is it not so good at at this point in the game when it comes to the tasks that lawyers perform on a regular basis? So one thing I'll do, you know, when I started in this space, I didn't even know what artificial intelligence meant. And that was something that, you know, bothered me because when I thought of artificial intelligence, and for folks listening to this, you might even think of this as well, as I thought robots, I thought Terminator, I thought maybe Hal from the, the movie. But let me just break that down. When we talk about artificial intelligence, what that is, is getting and training computer systems how to conduct a task on its own. Now, that still sounds futuristic, so let's kind of peer behind what that means as well. In order to get a AI system, a machine learning system, to be able to learn a task, you feed it multiple examples of a specific task that you want it to do, and it'll learn from those tasks and start to do that task without intervention. So let's give you an example, and I think all the listeners out there, you probably have seen this before. Whenever you sign up now for a new service, you oftentimes will enter in your password and it'll make you, you know, choose which one of these street signs has an address on it, for example. Now, what you may not know is that why that system is doing that is that we are all actually training self-driving cars. So when you click on these three squares have addresses, that's going to be fed into a system that now in the future as cars become more autonomous, they'll be looking at that and understanding where in their surroundings the street signs exist. Now, how does this relate to the practice of law? Well, you can apply this technology to perform certain tasks. And now to answer your question, Matt, I think artificial intelligence, and when I say AI, I mean machine learning, natural language processing, 
is really good at doing specific tasks that you can give it and provide it examples on how to do. In law, some examples of that would be answering legal research questions, reviewing in very basic ways certain contracts. NDAs, for example, are perfect for this. And the reason why, and I think importantly for everyone listening, is because whenever a system is trying to repeat a task, with enough examples, it'll be able to find things, but it doesn't understand what it's doing. So when it comes to analyzing that and making sense of what the system is bringing back, it won't understand that, and that's where it falls short. So I think anything that's repeatable and anything that a system can start to learn through many, many examples of that task being performed to be fed into it is right for AI. Now, Ross focuses, or at least its kind of launch line of business and law related to legal research. Is that right? That's right. So we saw artificial intelligence as this amazing force that's going to really help shape the practice of law in every respect. But we started with legal research, and the reason why, Matt, was really around the fact that we saw a tremendous way to take in multiple millions of examples of legal research questions and the degree of the answers that could come. There's not really one answer for a legal research question. We've all banged our head against the wall many times. But what's great about an AI system is you can say, hey, this is the question. These are the different shades of the possible answers to this question. And if you pour in millions of those examples into a system, you can then ask it a question it's never seen before, and it'll start to make connections based off of its training and be able to respond to you at a level that's much more accurate than the state of the art previously, which was what we used as Boolean connectors and keywords, which was a lot more just brute force. It'll find you any mention of automobile and or, you know, whatever within five words, but language is not like that and our practice isn't like that. So what we saw was, it, wouldn't it be amazing to build a system that actually understood attorneys' questions and could answer those questions? So, Ross has been around for about five years, uh, is that right? That's right. So, let's talk about kind of the workflow if, if an attorney is using Ross. I'm guessing that just like there are certain types of tasks in the practice of law as a whole that AI is better at and not so good at, the same thing kind of applies more specifically to legal research. There's probably parts of the legal research process that Ross is very good at, and more generally that AI and machine learning is particularly well suited to, but there's also parts where the human lawyer's eye is still necessary and there's, I'm guessing, no real possibility at this point that Ross is going to be able to just be fed a question and provide a precisely on point answer that a human can take without questioning. So what's kind of that workflow like? What is kind of the advantage of using Ross for certain tasks, and where is the human eye more necessary still? Well, I think, Matt, you really hit the nail on the head when you say there are going to be tasks that you need that human intervention. And I think in many ways, we always will until we get to a point where we have something called artificial general intelligence. And what, what that is kind of a, a whole other podcast and, and something that we can chat a little bit about in a moment. But Let's stick to our guns here and talk a little bit about workflows with AI versus not, and we'll use Ross as an example. In the past, to search through the tens of millions of documents that you're going to need to when conducting legal research, you used keywords and you used kind of those keyword connectors. Now, obviously, there's been attempts to move towards more of a natural language conversation with tools. 
but underlying that natural language question was still keyword technology and Boolean. So what we did was by building with machine learning and natural language processing, our system really you're able to just ask it a question the way you would ask a peer at the firm. So some of the best legal research I ever conducted as an attorney usually looked something like this. I understood the issue from my client and I would probably walk down the hall or pick up my phone and I'd say, hey Matt, didn't you deal with a situation that had you know, X, Y, Z occur? And you might say, you know what, Andrew, yes, that's right. I'm not sure what the latest cases are, but I know such and such case and such and such case may help you. That's a good jump off point. That's where AI can really help. And not just in legal research, that's in contract review and a bunch of different tasks it's doing. It's in the finding of information and bringing you back the wide array of possible answers to a question. Now with Ross in particular, you can ask it your fully formed question. And not only that, and I think this is really neat, you could even tell Ross that I'm doing research because I'm trying to put together a motion for a preliminary injunction. And you know, the research fact scenario could be there's uh, an IP question in regards to some advertising and the facts, um, you could even tell Ross, the facts in my case include, you know, it's a pharmaceutical company that is in New York and since 1996, this has been happening. So it even will go into the nitty gritty of why you're researching and the facts of your scenario. And it'll bring you back all the different shades of possible answers from case law and statutes and regulations. But that's where the human comes in, Matt. The human has to look at those possible variations and, and roots and arguments that can be made, determine which are the best to be made, and go with that. So what we're trying to do is take the heavy lifting away from the human attorneys when it comes to finding information and organizing information, but AI just won't and isn't at a point where it's going to be able to start to piece together your oral argument or fully draft your statement of claim or your motion for a preliminary injunction. Now, I'd imagine that even when you're kind of sticking within the kind of narrower confines of doing case law research, that there are certain aspects of that where AI probably struggles to, to, to do all the things that a human needs to do when reading a case. For instance, you know, any lawyer knows that there's a difference between a court's holding and dictum, where a holding is essential to the court's decision. It is precedential. It is meant to be binding on future courts that are bound by the precedent of the court that issues the opinion, whereas dictum might be an off-topic statement. It's usually not binding. It may have some persuasive authority, but it certainly isn't given the same weight as a holding. Now, lawyers argue over whether or not particular statements in cases are dictum versus a holding. So this is a bit of a wonky point, but that strikes me as an area where you probably still want a human eye to make sure that the, whatever part of the case Ross might be highlighting for you or seeing is actually something that you can rely on when you're citing it to a court. 100%. Uh, what I will say though, which is interesting though, Matt, is that artificial intelligence systems can start to learn. They, it won't understand in a human way why it is bringing back certain passages that mainly are the holding rather than the dicta, but it'll start to find those patterns based off of interaction. So for example, Matt, if you open a case, Ross brings you back say 35 cases and the passages from those cases that are really spot on to what you're researching. 
and say you start highlighting, we have different ways that this is really neat. You can say that you're reading through and there's a particular point within the case that you think is spot on or maybe you're scared of. Maybe you say, hey, actually that might really hurt my client's case here. With us, you can highlight that language and almost kind of see immediately where that argument or that discussion of that concept has occurred in all other cases. So why I bring that up is because as you start to interact with Ross and the system, it'll start to learn, hey, it's just interesting that everyone always seems to be citing to this area of the case or this, and it'll actually start to pick up in a rudimentary way what would perhaps be the holding and what would perhaps be, the, you know, not. That being said, and I think you're absolutely right, Matt, that the human eye and the human judgment is something that is going to be vital within the practice of law for the foreseeable future with these systems. But what I'm advocating for, and I think those listening might start to see, is instead of your attention being put towards a task that machines are better at, which is finding patterns and bringing you back the possible shades of a particular answer, essentially the machines do that for you, but the human task, which is how we evolved as humans, which is to assess, to reason, to argue, to, you know, have that kind of wow factor that makes a great attorney a great attorney, that cannot be automated. So in many ways, I like to joke that artificial intelligence may actually be making the practice of law a lot more human because it'll end up being a battle of wits, a battle of skill, rather than a battle of perhaps resources where you might just in the past, if you have 15 people researching 24 hours a day, they might find something that is very helpful. Right. And kind of jumping off on a point that you brought up there about where humans still have an advantage in terms of performing certain tasks, what are the barriers in, you know, obviously without getting into too technical detail here, but what are the barriers? Why is it that the algorithms that Ross develops for legal research can't be applied as easily or you can't come up with an algorithm that is just as effective at writing the first draft of a motion to dismiss? So the way I describe it in a way is with artificial intelligence systems, they learn how to do a specific task and then they can learn how to do that task quite well. So let's just use a, a human example. When you're younger, sometimes you might have to learn the hard way how to do a certain task. For example, you know, if, if you see a red hot element on an oven and it's a bright red color, as a kid, if you go ahead and you touch that red color, you might learn, oh wow, these things that look like ovens have these elements, it's hot. Also, you might even associate the color red, the heat coming off of it. There's a whole bunch of factors that go into that. I have a three and a half year old daughter. Fortunately, she has not yet made that discovery. <laughs> trying to keep that from happening. Sorry, keep well, going. Well, no, no, that's actually really important you say that because take, for example, the human capacity, and that's what I'm getting at, is to learn and then apply that learning over a variety of scenarios. So that same kid, you know, they ended up burning their hand at age six on that oven. They might be camping at age eight and they see a fire and they're going to start to associate and know that they shouldn't touch that fire. Now, what does this have to do with AI? Well. An AI system learns how to do one task. So we can teach that not to touch an element on one specific type of oven. It won't understand what that means in any context with another type of oven, with another type of element, et cetera. Where it turns maybe a different color when it gets hot. Correct, correct. So when it comes to, let's really drive it home now with the legal research. Ross is really great at finding the answers and the possible answers, I should say, because there's not really one route 
the shades of particular answers to your legal research questions. We can actually, and we have, done some really neat things around summarization using that same technology. So what we did, Matt, we assumed that if we could find you the most important passages based off of your question across all cases, one thing we taught our system to do, which is really neat, is you can ask your research question, it'll bring you back the possible answers. When you enter into a case, it'll summarize that case for you automatically based off of your legal research question using the same capability, which is finding within that case the sentences or multiple sentences that are most important to you. But to get it to now draft something, go in and make an oral argument, that's a totally different task. And in particular, that would mean that we would have to train the system how to do a variety of different tasks over a variety of different things. So being able to draft, write, et cetera, which I think in the future we'll see tools that can mimic that but underlying it will be maybe 15 or 25 machine learning systems that are working in tandem to produce something that looks like that system might have an understanding across a variety of tasks. Now, modern machine learning techniques, um, I know that there's some movement in causal inference and in other areas that are moving away from kind of traditional statistical analysis, but much of modern machine learning still relies on kind of statistical techniques. So this kind of ties into, you know, you said you, you need a good set of examples to train it with. And anybody who's familiar with political polling and just the general concept of how statistics works knows that you need a representative sample. Mm -hmm. So I'd imagine that one obstacle also of being able to train an algorithm how to write a legal brief is that as compared to case law, there's less of an ability to build a representative sample of what a legal brief looks like. Whereas many of the cases that lawyers rely upon have been cited over and over again, most briefs are never seen by the parties outside of the case and they may not even be publicly available. So there's probably, I'd imagine, just a barrier in terms of having the available data that you would need in order to train an algorithm on, hey, this is what a good legal brief looks like. Yeah, it, it becomes a data problem as well as the fact that you would have to train a system how to piece together sentences that have never been written before and then figure out how those sentences would fit together in a paragraph and then into an argument, and that is extremely difficult to do. As a matter of right. fact, we recently had a hackathon at Ross where one of our engineers ended up building this really fun system that would just write fake judgments. And some of them were kind of, you would read them and you'd be like, oh, maybe this kind of looks right, but some of them would get really kind of crazy and out there because machine systems have a really hard time doing that task. I remember a couple of years ago, and this, this goes to that point, that it's not just a data problem. It can also kind of go to the quirkiness of humans' writing styles and things like that, that there was some sort of algorithm that tried to write a Christmas song based on a review of other publicly available Christmas songs. And it was just about the creepiest sounding song that I've yeah. heard in my life. You know, so there's, there are all these subtleties when it comes to human language that it's probably you can overcome it in case law because there's kind of a formalized style to it. There are a lot of repeated patterns in terms of how courts phrase things. But once you start getting down to the level of what individual lawyers are doing, then you really start getting down to kind of a level of granularity that it's probably pretty difficult to model. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the way that I would distinguish it is when you start getting into tasks that are creative, that is really difficult for a machine to do. So I don't know. You know, I love listening to Bob Dylan, 
you know, and some of his lyrics are just out there and he strings together words and it's poetic. Computer systems don't really have that ability, that wow factor that we have as creative beings. And I think that's why sometimes when I see headlines that say things like artificial intelligence replacing whichever profession, I think that that is really just to have folks click on the article rather than kind of understand what's going on. Because I'm not going to sit here and say, Matt, that artificial intelligence will not automate some aspects of the practice of law. As a matter of fact, they already have and they will continue to. But the idea that the entirety of what an attorney does can be automated by a machine learning system, I don't think that that's a fair statement because that would mean that we would have computer systems that would have the full capability of what we could do as humans. And I'm in the field, I've, I have been for quite some time. We are nowhere close to that. I mean, I've heard different analogies at different AI conferences that we're at, you know, the brain of a bee right now for AI versus the brain of a human. I don't know what the perfect analogy will be, but I only cite to that and, and use that as a, an example just to give listeners an example of we're really far from that. And while some people might want to say, well, if we've been able to go from an ant brain to a bee brain in X amount of time, then, you know, over X amount of years, that means we're going to even get past human capacity. Maybe, but I don't think so. And I think that the conversations, and I mentioned earlier, Matt, uh, and for folks listening in, I mentioned the term artificial general intelligence. That's what I just made reference to, the idea that these AI systems will surpass or meet human capacity. I think that while that's a neat conversation, and I do think we need to, you know, as a society, have conversations, prepare for things, I don't think that that is really makes sense to discuss right now. I think that that is so far away that it takes away from the very important need to discuss what's happening now, how are our roles and our, our workflows changing, and how should law firms respond to that, if at all? And just to kind of take that point and tie it back into specifically, will AI replace lawyers, you know, and displace entire jobs in that sense? It sounds like, so there are two different types of technological progress that you can think of. There's the type of technological progress where you keep improving existing technologies and you augment it and you make it more powerful, and then there's technological progress that happens as a result of complete paradigm shifts. And an example of a paradigm shift would be the development of deep learning in the past decade. That was a new technique that hadn't been around before, and it's led to a lot of the breakthroughs that we've seen. Do you think that what's keeping AI from being able to do the entire job of a lawyer is something that really will be solvable just by scaling up current deep learning techniques and technologies and giving it more computational power and the ability to process more data? Or are we really, we're gonna need another paradigm shift. We're gonna need new fundamental breakthroughs in the field before that really becomes an issue. Yeah, great question. So for folks listening in, when we talk about deep learning, that's kind of the uh, way that we at Ross have been able to make a lot of the progress we have. It was a technique pioneered out of Toronto where we got our start by an individual named Jeffrey Hinton. He's a really interesting character who was at the University of Toronto where we started our company. And it really is about, as I mentioned multiple times, feeding in tons of different examples and having a computer system with a massive amount of computational power look at that and then start to find patterns and be able to do the things that we've described so far. So I just want to make sure that folks listening in, you got that, that's deep learning. Now, that's kind of painting it a little bit generically, but we don't have too many hours on, on the pod. But well, to answer your question, I think we need an absolute paradigm shift. I think deep learning is a very powerful method and the methodologies within it. 
it's a, it's a big umbrella term. But I do think one of the things that we have to come to grips with is that, you know, statistically on tax that you are able to train these systems on, accuracy runs, what, 75%, 85%. These systems aren't perfect. Just as humans, we aren't perfect. And right. until we can say that a system's absolutely perfect on how to do something in certain tasks, I don't think we can say that it's going to do the entire task of a human's job. In particular, I think in law, I think that we have a situation where the market that we're currently addressing, we could actually have many more lawyers in our space because I think that all of the legal demand of the world, and let's break it down to the United States, is not being met. And I think that in the future, the idea that everyone will have access to legal services and be paying for it is going to be something that is a real reality. So what I envision in the future are individuals, no one's going to sign a lease for a new place without getting that reviewed. And how would that look like, Matt? Well, they might pop into a local law firm or do it completely online, put it through their lease agreement, and it'll spit out. These are the three factors that are not included usually in your geography. These are the issues that could come up. And so I just see that we are in a situation, unlike other professions, that might have tapped out their total addressable market. I think lawyers, we haven't addressed the entire need of the market. So I think that that is a really positive thing because I think in the future, because of this technology, it may lead to more lawyers. And that's an interesting kind of you know, side effect of technology is that people think of the fact that because you have new techniques that are allow you to automate tasks that humans have always been able to perform, you think of automation as something that inherently displaces humans but it also can make them more productive. And when you make a human more productive, you actually can increase the demand for them. So that's kind of a dynamic that it, it depends on a lot of other factors, how it plays out specifically. But I think it's fair to say there's probably a good degree of uncertainty about you know, which lawyers will see their jobs transform the most, which ones will see the value of their services go up versus down. And you know, just going into the future, that's going to be an interesting trend to keep an eye on. I agree. I think the example I like to point to, Matt, is let's take banking. In the past, you know, when ATMs came out, if you were a teller and you heard there's a machine called the automated teller machine, I'd be quaking in my boots. I mean, that, that's pretty clear, automated teller machine. What's interesting, though, is what happened. As ATMs started to become installed and started to be installed in greater numbers, it has led to a greater overall employment of human tellers. And the reason why is that by bringing down the cost of opening up a bank branch, it has led to banking, the system of banking to become a lot more democratized. Therefore, it wasn't something that only a certain percent of the population did. Everyone banks, everyone banks online, and even the accessibility of banking, you know, for listeners on uh, uh, listening in, it wasn't that long ago where if you wanted to have money over the weekend, you would take your money out on Friday. There wasn't the ATM capability, and, and that wasn't something that was widespread. And so I think that I, that is kind of what I see is going to happen in law, which is that we will lead to, with this technology, a wider accessibility of legal services and a greater employment of lawyers. But I think, Matt, you had a great point. The term lawyer and what a teller did in the past is different than what they do now and what lawyers do now versus what they'll do in five years versus what they'll do in 15 years will be different. But to that, Matt, here's what I would say. 
that's already the case. I mean, fax, uh, the fax machine changed our industry, email changed our industry, the telephone changed the practice of law. Electronic records. Electronic records. So we've gone through these shifts. Now, I do think artificial intelligence is a much larger shift than what we've seen with those technologies, but I don't think it's something that is unheard of in our profession. We, we adopt, we change, we use the technology, and we grow. And that's a great point about the democratization of banking that was brought about by automated teller machines, because certainly one of the deepest and most difficult issues that law has had to deal with over the course of the past, well, forever, uh, is the access to justice issue and how people from lower social economic income backgrounds and who have less of an ability to pay for legal services simply have been shut out of many areas of the law. And as a result of that, you know, we have a kind of unequal legal system. And it would be interesting if AI kind of ironically, by increasing the ability of people from lower income strata are able to participate more in the legal system, that it actually increases the usage of the legal system. Yeah, you know what though, I totally agree with that, but Matt, you know, I think it was yesterday. I was chatting with someone and I told them that we have an access to justice crisis for the folks who might not make that much money, for the middle class, and even for the wealthy. And they kind of looked at me and they said, what do you mean? And I said, who's one of the richest people you know? Just say a name. They said, what do you mean? I said, well, I bet you that he's currently getting ripped off for his legal services. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, there might be a way to completely automate certain tasks that he's currently paying for that he would probably want. And so why I bring that up is that I envision the future being this transformation and this access to justice for everyone with on-demand legal services. Things will happen quicker. You can get from question to answer quickly. You can get from assessing your success rates. Now, that doesn't mean if I was to put in a bunch of scenarios into a computer system and say, what are my chances of winning? And it says 67%. I wouldn't say that means that you should feel like you're going to win or you're not. But what I will say is we might get to a point where the practice of law is a lot more instantaneous and we get a lot of more additional insights that could automate things that's going to affect folks at the lower end of the socioeconomic status, but even folks amongst the wealthiest. Because for me, access to justice is not just defined as improving the situation for those who might not make that much, but it's also improving the situation for the middle class and the wealthy. A common joke amongst attorneys is, you know, legal services are even expensive for those who are delivering it. Some attorneys can't afford themselves. So I envision a world, and I think in particular, you know, if you look at some of the stuff that Littler's been up to, in terms of staying ahead of that, I think that's important because ultimately clients are continuing to demand those efficiencies, and that comes at every level of the value-add food chain, I would say. So you, you hit on one point that I kind of want to, you know, go off, and this will be kind of our final line of discussion here. You know, you mentioned that one thing that maybe we might be able to do with AI is kind of give you a sense of how likely it is you are to succeed with a particular motion or in a particular case, give you kind of, you know, a level of confidence of whether or not a particular legal move that you are planning to make is going to pan out. It's one thing to use law to kind of help you strategize about engaging with judges and making arguments to judges. But there's also kind of the flip side of that, which is, 
how much should judges rely on artificial intelligence? And that gets kind of to the deeper question of, is law something that goes beyond simply what is in legal texts, what can be analyzed as data? You know, are there moral and ethical considerations where even if a lot of the tasks that a lawyer does, do we want or could we see judges also kind of become automated to a certain degree? And I just would kind of be interested to hear your thoughts on that. You know, what implications does artificial intelligence have for the law as a whole? And are there certain parts of the law that we maybe just want to keep artificial intelligence away from? Well, I would say yes, but let me unpack. Um, I get asked a lot about that in terms of kind of so-called robo-judges or, or these kind of automated systems. And for me, and I think this is kind of what my tech background, is I always like to kind of see where are we currently performing, and if we can improve on that, I think we should. So what do I mean in this context? Well, I would love to have a study done where you look at the outcomes of certain judgments using a variety of different judges across the country. We would have a conversation with the client, opposing counsel, everyone, plaintiff, defendant, everyone, and see their level of satisfaction with that decision. Then I'd love to do, and we don't even have to have those, those judgments be final and binding. We could have an AI system start to deliver these kind of so-called judgments, and we could ask people, if this was the judgment that was spit out by this judge, we could even keep it behind a screen, the human versus the AI system. How do you feel about this? Are you satisfied? Why are you satisfied? Why are you not? And Matt, I'll tell you, if we get to a point, and I guess I, it, it's a philosophical question, we get to a point where humans are saying, you know what, I felt that I'm a lot more satisfied. There's a lot more satisfaction, and obviously we'd have to define what that means. With an AI system that spit out that judgment, I don't know what to say. Right. So what I would say, though, is I'm not saying we should do it without a deep examination and a participation of all members of the ecosystem within law, including the public, and I think we should even poll, you know, hey, this is what happened, what does everyone think? And we would also have to ensure that there are security measures in place to ensure that these AI systems wouldn't necessarily be kind of hijacked for political purposes, et cetera. Now, I think it's fun that we ended on this because then it gets us into that kind of what happens in the future, but this isn't something that is that far-fetched, and I'll tell you why. In 2019, tail end of 2019, it did come out that China is already having AI judgments in certain cases, and it's not something that's happening in only a few. It's actually been happening in millions of different cases in certain scenarios. And I think that what I've told folks online is we need to see what those outcomes are and see is it improvement on the status quo of satisfaction? Is it less? And if it's less, we shouldn't do it. But if it leads to an improvement, we might want to consider it. And Gary Mathiasen a couple of years ago wrote an article on the Loomis decision in Wisconsin, I believe it was. And that was a case where somebody challenged a sentence that was informed, I'll say, not, not necessarily driven or decided by an algorithm that produced a kind of risk assessment score for that defendant. And, you know, that's an example of, as you said, it's not that far-fetched. We're already seeing at least around the edges, we're already seeing artificial intelligence being incorporated into the, the bench side rather than just the bar side of the law. 
And I think it is both frightening and interesting to, to think about how that might play out in the future. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we have to keep in mind that in order to train these systems, you use past workflows and past examples to inform and teach the system how to do something. That means if there are biases in certain sentencing, that system will spit out those biases. But that, for me, is not a reason to go ahead and not use those systems at all, and I'll tell you why, Matt. If we could start to uncover the biases in human judgments and then pair those systems with humans to make better decisions, better sentences, I think that's the direction things should go. So I think it's already happening. It's happening internationally. It's happening at home here in the United States. And the future of our profession will have more AI systems. You know, I, I think of systems that one day will look at potential jurors, match their face to their online personalities and profiles, match to their family members, and be able to give people with pretty, pretty good statistical accuracy what party they might vote for, where they might feel on certain hot topic issues based off of their Facebook groups, their tweets, and et cetera. This is not far-fetched. You could build that today. And I think we do all, as a profession, have to think about what this means. Andrew Arruda, it's a brave new world, and thank you for joining us to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. And like you said, it is a brave new world, and I think we all, as members of this ecosystem, have to be part of what we want this technology to do, what we don't want it to do, and I think we do owe it to our clients because I envision a future where it will be an ethical obligation for attorneys to use this technology because if you're not, you might be delivering a service that is not at par to what your client deserves. All right, thank you. That concludes this Littler podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.